Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. Nick here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. And I hope that you're enjoying the build-up to the big 100. It's only a few episodes away. I'll be announcing soon who I've got on the show for that. And I'm sure that's going to be a classic for all of you people out there, all of you listeners who have been enjoying the stuff that I've been doing for the last year, 18 months or so. If you haven't joined the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook, please do. And if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't yet left a review for Scale Up Your Business, please do so. It helps what I'm doing. It inspires me to keep on going. And as I said, I always love getting feedback. Now, today's episode, this is a really, really powerful and important one for me because if I look back over the last couple of decades, there's only a handful of people that have really made a huge influence on my career, certainly given me the foundations to do what I've done to help other businesses grow and scale and, and being in some cases formative in terms of everything that I think about business, about leadership. So I'm delighted to have on the show today, one of those rare individuals. Now that person is Philip Thomas. Now Philip Thomas is the president of Essentials Marketing Division and he is also the chairman of CanLine. Now I'm going to get into kind of what CanLine is. A lot of you creative bods out there in the marketing and advertising industry will know exactly what Can is because as I say, it's, it's, it's more than just the festival of creativity. It's kind of like the benchmark of, of accolades, of kind of excellence, of, of outstanding delivery within the creative industries. It's a huge, huge thing. And Phil was the CEO of the Lions Festival for 10 years. But the reason I brought him on was not because of that, not because of his stellar career. It's the fact that we met 20 years ago. In fact, he was the first, I say boss, he was the guy who was heading up EMAP in Australia when I first got into the whole magazine game. Not only that, he was the editor of Empire. He was the managing director and the publisher of FHM Worldwide. He, he launched FHM. For those who haven't heard of For Him magazine, it was just a, an icon back in the sort of 90s. And he was the, um, the man responsible for launching that magazine in more than 30 countries. And then we also worked together when I moved to the UK in 2003. He was the managing director, the group managing director of one of EMAP's specialist divisions. So, so we spent, I think, no less than probably five, maybe even more years working together. It couldn't be eight years. And a lot of the stuff that I learned around leadership, about communication, about having a clear vision, about authenticity, about integrity um, came from Phil Thomas. So I'm not going to go on about it. You know, you can tell that I respect the man greatly. It's fantastic to bring someone like this on, not only because I got so much out of spending time working with Phil, but I know that his insights and the way that he thinks about business is, is such a rare thing. And I know that 
today, you're just going to get so many great nuggets, so many great things about leadership more than anything else. And, and a little bit about marketing too, because he's a bit of an expert in that now, but certainly about leadership, you're going to get so many great things that you'll be able to take away and apply in your business. And the last thing I want to say is that we talked about this through the interview, but also beforehand is that Phil has been the guy who's kind of come into businesses and done scale up. So not only has he led some big organizations, he's had to go in there and build the machine, you know? So all the stuff I talk about, about managing people, creating systems and processes, all those really important things, this guy has done it. He's done it multiple times and he's done it to a high degree of success. So there we go. Big intro. I'm excited to be able to share this with you. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Philip Thomas. Hi, everybody. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I have someone with me today who I have known 20-odd years, I think. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get into it. That person is Philip Thomas. Now, Phil is the president of Essentials Marketing Division, which comprises Canline International, the Festival of Creativity, Walk and Media Link. He's also the chairman of CanLine, having been CEO of Lions, the Lions Festival for 10 years between 2006 and 2016. And if you haven't heard of Can, I know a lot of you would have, it's kind of, I'm going to say the Oscars of the whole creative industry, and I'm going to get told off in a second for that, but it's massive. So you know what? I'm absolutely thrilled to have Phil on the show. So Phil, welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Thanks so much, Nick. It's really great to see you again after after so long. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No, no problem. And, and is it wrong me saying it's the Oscars of the creative industry? Is that is that like a slap in the face, or is that on the mark? Well, we like we like to think of the of us of the Oscars being the can lions of the film industry. Really, ah, good. <laughs> the way that we is the way that we look at it. But no, it's it is partly that. It's partly an award. Uh, so we give awards to um, to advertising, marketing, communications. But it's also a very big gathering as well. So it's a big event with, you know, many tens of thousands of people come along to it. Or they would do if uh, if we weren't in this current crisis. This kind of COVID thing. Well, you know, it's funny because mm. we'll get into this a little bit now because, we, you know, the 20 years thing is a funny thing. So I, a lot of people know on this podcast, I started my kind of corporate career in the media game. And, and that was sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And I met Phil Thomas, would have been around about 99, 2000 because he was heading up at that stage um, the whole of EMAP, EMAP Australia, um, which had FHM, it had Empire, whole of action sports. So we have known each other that long, mate. I know. Great, yeah, I know. And I have to say, you haven't changed a bit, Nick. Um, but yeah, we have. We've known each other ever since, ever since then, the, basically 2000. It was January the 2nd. 2000 that I moved out to Sydney and I met you a couple of days after that. I think. That's right. I know it was, it was one of the, I, I, I talk a lot about my, um, I suppose my career before doing what I do now and how formative it was. So I just want to say on the podcast, how working with you and your leadership during that time, I've taken so many different things that I learned from you into what I've done since. And um, I just want to thank you on the podcast for that. That's very you, kind. Just Thank to make you, you feel a bit embarrassed as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've been a, just a fantastic leader. So I want to I kick off, if you like, today around that. So if you can just share with us a bit more of that journey, because you've got a really colourful career. Canline is a fantastic part of it. But if we go back a bit, it's even more colourful. So can you share some of that with um, the Scale Up Your Business listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, I won't go back too far, but I wasn't particularly good at school. I uh, went to <laughs> art college. I did photography at art college. Um, I attempted to become a photographer for a while, failed 
at that for various reasons. And then I, um, I got into the writing game. So I got into magazines. So I started working on magazines. I worked for various magazines and I ended up as the editor of Empire, which is a movie magazine in the UK. Some of your listeners might have heard of it. And I, uh, I, I, I worked on Empire, I worked on the launch of Empire, and then I ended up as the editor of Empire. Uh, after that, I went into publishing. I ran a number of different magazines, as you well know, because we, we hooked up again later on, didn't we? We did, we but, did. But I, um, I, I ran a number of magazines, maybe most interestingly, FHM, which was obviously a, a, an icon in the 1990s. Um, and we internationalized FHM. Uh, we went through a very successful stage on FHM. Um, and I, rem <laughs> I remember, I mean, there were such golden days that I actually remember the the marketing guys coming in and saying, you know, we just don't know how many to print this month, Phil. How many should we print? Because we just seem to sell out. We just, I mean, can you believe it now? We just seem to sell out whatever number we print. It was Over, oversubscribed is the, is the, the catchphrase that people say now, literally. But God, those days, those days, trend. that feels like a lifetime ago now when we talk about it. But I remember that a bit in the, in the Australia side of that. But, you know, if you had a hot magazine or any given month, a great, you know, um, cover line, cover story model, whatever it was, I mean, God, you know, it was hard. It was hard to predict what could happen. It really was. It was a total boom time. And uh, th that taught me one thing, you know, which is that really you can be, you can be as good as you can be, but if you're in a market that's floating up, it's always a good place to be. And if you're in a market that's very, very challenged, it's a good idea to get out of it. No, uh, but, because sometimes, you know what I mean? You can't swim against the tide. No, um, I remember I, before we, I mean, I'm going to let you go on, but there's one thing that I just, I just remembered um, someone said to me, and I don't think I've ever asked you this question, so it's a good time to ask it now. But someone said that when you were working on FHM um, in the UK, there was a point in time where you were going to make a decision, I think, to spend quite a lot of money on advertising. I think it was TV advertising. And there was, you got heaps of heat. I, the, the story I heard was that everyone said you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. And I mean, I'm going to have a little bit of creative license here. As I understand it, you did it. And of course, there was no copy sales whatsoever straight after that happened. But a few months later, everything just went boom. And it's one of those things that looking back, actually, that one decision was one of the things that really catapulted FHM back in, back in the 90s. Is that true? Yes, that is true. That was one of the things. But I suppose going, coming back full circle to what I do now, so one of my businesses is very specialist on on the effectiveness of advertising and marketing walk. Uh, and of course, it's very hard to winnow out what was the activity that mm. really made the difference. And I think with businesses like magazines, of course, you've got, the, you've got to overlay the content and the actual product itself is so incredibly, incredibly important. I know it is in most businesses, but with, with, with content, it's even more. So you've got a fantastic product and that, that helps, but did the, did the TV advertising work? I mean, we, we, uh, we once, we once uh, projected a naked woman on the side of the Houses of Parliament, which some people might remember. Did that have an impact? Well, it certainly seemed to have an impact. We were selling coffees a month after that. So I remember that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a fun time. I, that's, that's huge. And some of the stuff you said there's interesting because, you know, we can talk about products a little bit as well, because I think from my experience back in the publishing game, you know how you know, you can sell a can of Coke, but it's pretty much always a can of Coke. The consistency of the formula is always there. A magazine changes every week or month, you know, so you have to almost recreate it. It does, it does get a marketplace of fans and all that, but that's where the unpredictability comes. 
That's so true, Nick. I mean, the number of times, and you will remember this because you were very involved in marketing for a long time, um, people would be appointed from outside the magazine industry. Marketing people would be appointed. They might be appointed from the FMCG or whatever it might be. And the idea of management was we'll get someone with a different point of view. And of course, all the old magazine types would sit there and say, but magazines are different. Magazines are different. <laughs> and that difference, really, you've hit the nail on the head, because as you say, can of Coke this month is the same as can of Coke last month. So you've got a consistency of product there. But with a magazine or, you know, there are many other products like this, of course, but with a magazine is a good example. It, it completely changes uh, everything from the cover image to what's inside it, all the articles, the, everything is different. And that means the marketing challenge is very, very different, which of course, you know, inside out, but those people coming from outside, from FMCG, I think they, they often found it really hard to get their heads around. Yeah, them. I agree. I, I talk about this, um, when I work with companies now, we still talk about um, uh, avatars or brand archetypes. And, and obviously I wanna get into your kind of what you do now around marketing as well in, in, in the conversation today. But I, I always use the example of magazines because you know, you have to be so crystal clear on that archetype. You know, we, we used to give them names. There used to be cardboard cutouts in the office because every article was written for that one person. Does it work for Jim over there? Does it, you know, see what I mean? And I think sometimes even now how marketing has changed massively, there's still a need to connect with that, that one, that one person that you're trying to appeal to, even though obviously from getting that right, it gives you clarity and focus to get scale from that. Well, listen, man, I completely agree with you. And this is an argument that I often have. So, so I'm obsessed with this idea that you have that one archetype. And I go back to uh, FHM where we had a very clear idea that, you know, the reader was a 25 year old man. And, you know, we even knew where they lived and we, we built, as yeah. you say, we built their whole lifestyle. Um, and one of the reasons we said that was because, listen, if you're if you're 16, being 25 doesn't help. That looks like a lot of fun. So I'm going to buy FHM to try to be like that 25 year old. And of course, if you're 40 or 45, 25 looks like a hell of a lot of fun. So it does. But, I'm 45 but, 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 now and I can tell you, <laughs> I, I, I remember 25 with fond memories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the thing people can't get their heads around, which is fascinating, you know, we could do a whole pod podcast about this, is that people say, but can I have more than one? Can, come on, please, because I've got lots of different customers. I've got to have more than one. I want to do more than one persona. But the irony is that the more focused you are and the more obsessed you are on that one archetype, the more popular you are with others. It's just really odd. I'm sure yeah. you find that over your time. The more scattergun it is, the more you say, hey, listen, we've got a 16-year-old girl and we've got a 45-year-old housewife and we've got this and that and the other, the less you please anyone, right? So the more focused you are, the more you please everyone. And it's I call it a strange the, yeah, paradox. It is a strange paradox. And I call it the, these days the death of the generalist, right? You know, you, you, it's, I don't like the term niching, but it, it kind of describes it well. But this micro going deeper and deeper and deeper because, you know, obviously the onset of digital and the fact that you can use different techniques to reach people globally now uh, means that having a very a very narrow focus on on one individual that you know extremely well actually isn't small anymore. Um, it's got scale simply because the reach to get to them is different than what it was even 20 years ago. So, but people still have the psychology, and and this I, I kind of coach on this a bit, is it's a scarcity mindset that if you go narrow, it means small, which means scarcity for you and your business. But actually, when they get their heads around that, going going that narrow actually opens up more success generally yeah. in my experience yeah 
It does. And I think also depending on your product, I mean, this, this, I first learned about this from a guy called Simon Gulliford, who you might remember did yeah. a lot of training with us and a lot of coaching with us. And he used to use the example of Wrangler way, way back in the yeah. very early 90s. And, and Wrangler was losing its, its focus. It was losing market share. It was all over the place. And he said the new marketing guy came into Wrangler and he said, we are only going to advertise to a 19 year old. That's it. And what that did was, of course, 19 year olds set, they set the pace for everyone else. So everyone's seeing all the 19 year olds wearing Wrangler. Suddenly it's cool again. And that relentless focus, it's always worked for me, I have to say. So I'm 100 percent with you on that. Yeah. Well, in a roundabout way, the, the point I was making about the the TV advertising in some cases was not so much about what it was when you did that at FHM. It was the bold decision to do it. Do yeah. You know, you know, and, and, and actually, you know, in certainly the time that we've worked together, which it's got to be about at least five years, I think when obviously we obviously worked in the UK together too, you were always very clear and always very focused in your decision-making. And I think that's a, an absolute skill. So, so let's, let's kick on a bit now. So, so after FHM um, and, and kind of, you know, I, there's a bit where we didn't work together because you came over to the UK, yeah. you were heading up here. So let's start with that. And then, and then obviously what happened and where you went after that. So after I left FHM, I was then invited to become managing director of EMAP Australia. That's where we met. And, uh, and, and that was a very different experience actually, because EMAP, at the time, some people might remember, was a quite pretty powerful media organization. Uh, if you said you were from EMAP, it would open doors. This was the publisher of Q and Empire and L and um, you know Red and Smash Hits and also had radio stations. And um, went over to Australia, and of course, you remember this very well, we had a 4% share and no one knew who the hell we were. <laughs> so for me, it was a bit of a shock. And the other big shock was uh, the need to manage cash. All of a sudden, I had to actually worry about making payroll, which was like completely alien to me. But I did learn a lot at the time. Um, and I also learned about what it's like to deal with enormously powerful competitors. I mean, our competitors at the time, you'll remember Kerry Packer, you know, Kerry Stokes, who ran the Channel 7 network. I mean, these are pretty scary guys. So it was a bat baptism of fire and really interesting. What was your, um, um, on that period, because, yeah, I, I haven't really reflected on this for a while, but, and particularly you coming into it, because I came from um, Rupert Murdoch's empire, so over to EMAP. So I already come from something pretty big. Did you, were you intimidated? Did you see it as a challenge? What, what was probably the, the biggest learning you had from your time running, running um, EMAP Australia? Well, I came, I came cocky. So I thought, you know, we're, we're EMAP, we're the best in the world, we know what we're doing. And I left, shall I put it less cocky? <laughs> um, um, and I think- Work for less cocky. Um, yeah, uh, no, wise, well, more- oh, Wise. Wise, you left wise. You're a wise <laughs> individual, a wise leader at the end. <laughs> yeah, I did. But I, th I think reflecting on your question, the, I think the biggest learning I had was that it is, so much of business is about relationships and we were a very new business we'd only acquired uh in australia a matter of four or five years earlier and the relationships that people like kerry packer had were deep and meaningful and long lasting and i think that's what that's what i learned more than anything is actually if you're going to spend any time on anything it should be with customer relationships because without that you really are up against it yeah, it's it's um I don't think that's changed ever. Um and it's a really nice point because one of the things I find people don't focus enough on to this day is is partnerships. 
And as I was mentioning before, um, we started recording about someone I spoke to who had leveraged some partnerships through COVID and created almost three or four six-figure businesses. And, and the reason he did that is he went into communities where there was someone leading that community where they were no liked and trust, trusted. And you know, it's a little bit like getting invited around to someone's house for dinner. If you don't know anyone at the dinner table for the dinner party, but you're invited by the person hosting, you're already automatically accepted. You know, yeah. and it kind of the idea of having to build something like from scratch organically versus, you know, getting through to a network where there's already got that authenticity and all that sort of stuff. It's such a clever way of getting scale quickly. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Cool. And so, so I think, so Australia, that was, um, that was tough. It was, it's a very different market, as you know, it's completely different. And then I came back and I ran uh, EMAP Automotive, which was all the motorbike car magazines and a few other bits and pieces as well. That's where we worked together as well, again, again yeah. um, ran that for three years, not very successfully as it happened. Um, and then I kind of, tooled around a little bit and then I found myself as the CEO of, uh, of Can Lions, the uh, Festival of Creativity, which I did for, as you say, for 10 years. Yeah, because we parted ways towards, and you know what's funny about that time, um, sort of mid 2000s, let's call it, and that's when even places like businesses like Amazon weren't even really doing well. Like, everyone was on Amazon's not going to work and now look at it. But that's when, that's when the magazine, the traditional um, media game, as we would call it, the publishing game started to change. Um, and I think all of us, uh, got hit by that in terms of we just didn't see it coming so quickly because uh, yeah you went off and did your thing I went off and did Getty Images in New York for a while um, and then we've ended up where we are but uh, so take us through that period and and because obviously you've been can line now for uh, 14 years or with with obviously um, essential for 14 years take us through that journey because I, I think we, we obviously I don't know much about this but I think you, I saw all the things you were doing from afar um, and it's almost like you, you took what you'd learned and some of the challenges and really put it all together with the stuff you were doing with, with Can. Yes, I think Can was interesting because, as, as we mentioned briefly, I, I think when I look back at my career, although it's been in a corporate context, I think that I've basically scaled up just about all the things that I've done. A couple of exceptions, I've scaled down a few things, which is why, I did which I've, which is why I've been effectively fired from them. But if we concentrate, if, if we do that editing of the resume, which so many people do, um, I, I will edit my resume and talk about the things that I've scaled. No, I, I like the authenticity. Do you know what? We talk a lot about leadership here and you learn as much as you do from the things that don't go well as you do from the other stuff. So, you know, I, I think it's actually really refreshing because a lot of the, a lot of times the, these days, people just kind of get into the, the, the great story. So yeah, I mean, let's get into it because, you know, it's from afar, your career is, is really, really impressive. And I want to understand exactly the scale up piece, particularly now let's get into kind of how you do that, how you've done it. Cause most of it has been successful from what I've seen. Yeah. So just to give people a really quick bit of context, I wasn't the first editor of Empire. I was the second editor of Empire. So I didn't launch it, but I took it on. I wasn't the first publisher of FHM after we bought it in, in, in the 90s. I was the second publisher of FHM. I wasn't the first managing director of EMAP Australia. I was the second. And then with Can Lions, it's been going a lot, lot longer. But actually, we bought it from basically from its founder. So you could say I was the second to take that on as well. So there's a bit of a theme there. Right? There's a very big um, theme there. 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, in each of those cases, uh, of uh, the, the businesses have grown dramatically. They drew, they grew dramatically um, for whatever reason. But I happen to be involved in them, and I was just reflecting on what some of those things, what some of those learnings might be. The difference, I suppose, from being that scrappy launch person, you know, the, the pioneer that goes out there and has to build the damn thing, uh, to being the person who comes second with so much that's already been, so much groundwork has already been laid, but then what do you do when that groundwork's been laid? So I was kind of, I was thinking about the things that, that perhaps were in common with those different businesses. And I suppose the first one was to, to, uh, to try and inculcate a process. Because I think when you're launching something new, you, you, you're, on, you're on autopilot, you're working 24 hours a day, you're making decisions on the fly, you're chopping and changing as you go. You're trying to make it work desperately. I think once it's been established and you want to scale it up, one of the most important things is having some kind of a process. So an example of that might be, I've always put a lot of time and effort into really being clear on the purpose and the values of the businesses that I run and communicating that to the teams. So when I've taken over businesses, I've always asked the question, you know, is there a document around that really explains why we exist, what our values are, and what the purpose of what we do every day is? Because I think people need to understand that when they come into work every day. And, and that kind of, uh, and I would spend time communicating that over and over and over again so that people came with me. Because the other thing about scaling up, of course, is that you've got more staff than you ever had at the beginning. That's right. I just want to jump into what you said there because I, the, the, I see this a lot that people don't put the effort all the time into really understanding the why behind things and certainly the values piece. Did you find that those documents didn't really exist more often than not when you came into these, these businesses and you had to create them? Uh, depending on the business, but broadly speaking, no, they, had, they didn't really exist. They were kind of, you see, because I think when you're, when you're launching, there may be just a real handful of you you're dealing with each other almost by osmosis and you understand everybody understands the, the fundamentals of what you're doing and i just think when you start to build out a bigger team when it gets to 10 20 30 100 people that understanding and that kind of nascent understanding of why we're here i think it naturally just just dissipates so you then have to put much more effort in trying to, to build that yeah. Do you have any on that? Because this is something we haven't covered. Do you have any specific, uh, I suppose, tips or insights on how to do that effectively? I mean, communication you mentioned is one and you've got to get out there and be consistent with that communication. But when you're creating, you know, what that that headline purpose is, that mission and and the values, is there a way that you've found that works really well to kind of even just get that, you know, done, um, written down, um, et cetera? Well, I, th I think a couple of points. So I think it's actually relatively easy to do in the first place. I think you get a whole bunch, you get a bunch of you together, senior people, and you say, we need to, we need to encapsulate in a, in a sentence our purpose. In other words, why we exist as a company. What do we do? We need to have four or five values by which we are going to, going to live. Um, and we're going to have four or five behaviors mm. about how, yeah. how, we, how we approach things, right? So, so I think, you know, an away day will sort that out for you. Yeah. I, th I, think it, I, th I honestly think, you know, get some smart people in the room who understand the business, you're going to come out with that pretty clear. Um, it then has to be, I think, honed down and, 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 and uh, 
and, and created as clearly as possible. The question then becomes, well, how, how am I going to make sure this continues to live? And the way that I've always found the best way to make it continue to live is to say, this isn't just a document that we're now going to put in a drawer. This is a document that we're going to look at every decision we make through the lens of this document. Right. So, so let, let's give you one really quick example. One of the brand values of CanLions is neutrality. Okay, so because we give this award out a bit like the Oscars. And if anybody thought for one moment that it wasn't neutral and fair and completely above board, our business would fall to pieces. So that's one lens when you're coming, coming together to think of ideas to grow the business. That's a lens you look through. Will this be seen to be completely neutral? Is the decision we're making here seem to be completely above board and neutral? So it gives you an opportunity to come back to those values, come back to those behaviors and say, before we make this decision, let's th look through the lens of what we all decided we're here for and how we're going to behave. Yeah, I love it. I love the fact that you mentioned the word behaviors as well, because I think sometimes, and I see this a lot, people people go through a, a creating values exercise and, and they think it needs to be a number of words that sit at the reception wall. And then they don't translate them into actually, you know, people people's performance management, if you like, or how they're um, recognized, rewarded, and potentially fired comes down to behaviors. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and it can get quite granular. I mean, it can get so again, going back to can lines just quickly. One of the other values is is global. Right. So it's a completely global business. We've got uh, customers in 170 countries, but we're based in London. We're based in Covent Garden in London and 90 percent of the staff are UK. But when you are really clear that one of your values is global, even the copy and the marketing has to be looked at through that lens. So using colloquialisms, using British words, using words that will, you know, can be easily understood or references understood only by the UK. You say, hang on a minute, we've been really clear that we're global. We have to have a global outlook. This copy isn't global. So it just helps you to continually bring it back to how you operate every day. Yeah, I love it. Excellent. Well, I haven't covered that in that level of detail on the show before i reference it but that was that was very powerful so thank you for that so yeah, you've got more points there as well so let's let's keep going this is great so it's about the it's about the process and and then i mentioned a, a second ago about communication and I, th I do think as you scale up your business you've got more people and the minute you have more than i don't know a handful of people i think you have to um increase the level of communication i used to work with a guy whose motto was tell them and tell them again so, and, and I've seen this so many times in my career, managers think they've communicated something up the wazoo, you know, they just, they think they're blue, they are blue with exhaustion for telling people, telling the staff something or other. Um, and then you find out that actually there's a misunderstanding or so-and-so doesn't even know this is happening. Because when you're the teller, you nearly always underestimate how often you have to communicate. So that was the second thing I think I did was as these, as these businesses scale to understand the importance of communication. Communication is one of those things I found that in my career, you, you're always told that you can't communicate enough. Um, and then I've, I've sort of probably myself, when I've kind of run businesses as CEO, I've always found that I've not done it enough and that I've learned the hard way because the message doesn't get kind of sent. And then what I started to do uh, more latterly in my career is, is kind of have 
different forms of it. So I would have weekly stand-ups with no real agenda. You'd have kind of monthly meetings, you'd have quarterly updates. And then I started to do video recordings for people who were more remote so that they would always get to at least see me at least once a week saying something. And, and it might not even be that important in terms of the, the priorities, but it was important that I was getting at least visibility and getting some messages out there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think going back to our point earlier about, you know, the values, but also going back to the archetype point, um, there are lots of different ways to communicate. And one of them is to constantly bring back the work you've done on these things on a daily basis. So if I go way back to, to Empire days, uh, if somebody had an idea for an article or, 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 um, or a piece in the, in the magazine, our reader was a guy called Steve and he lived in Leicester. Um, he had a girlfriend called Debbie. I mean, we knew everything about this guy. And mm -hmm. so just, just when someone comes up with an idea, you say, you know, what would Steve think? And, and that counts as a piece of communication. That counts as saying, don't forget our customer. Don't forget the end user. We know who he is. He's a very specific guy. Yeah. What would Steve think if, with this idea? And I like the fact it galvanizes um, back to the scale up um, point you were saying beforehand, where you've got more people having such a clear view of that ideal customer, that target customer galvanizes everyone as well, because there's no ambiguity. You know, it's like, no. well, this is, this is who we're here to serve. If you, if you get the term and this is everyone's aligned behind that. Cool. Okay. So a process or communication, what else? Well, I think, I think it, you could describe it as creativity, I suppose. And, and that's a really vague word and what a word that obviously I've given a huge amount of thought to over the, over the years, because I run a festival of creativity, but what I suppose what I mean by that is when I look back at the so so on all of the businesses that I've run, I've launched new ideas and new products. But if I actually look back on them, although the actual businesses have grown quite a lot, that is despite the fact that a lot of these new things that I brought in actually ended up failing. They they in a way they 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 achieved something that I didn't know they were going to achieve in the ultimately. Right. Um, and so uh, well, I mean, I've launched lots of magazines that have basically folded ultimately and failed. But if I go back to some of the ideas that we brought into Can Lions in the early days, I thought, oh, this is going to, this is going to become a standalone mini product within my product suite. It's going to, you know, it's going to have a life of its own. It's going to have a P&L of its own. But four or five years later, I look and it, it actually doesn't exist anymore as a thing. But what it's done, to my surprise, is brought in a whole load of new customers to another area of the business that I wasn't really expecting it to do in the first place. So I think that openness to listen, let's just give something a try. You know, just, if it doesn't, if it fails in inverted commas, you'd be really surprised about what it will have done for you in another area of your business you weren't expecting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I strongly believe that it isn't failure unless you give up, if you know what I mean. So there's a piece there which, even though the intention may not have been what you expected it to be on that particular project with, you know, a very clear plan or whatever it is, it doesn't mean that the team hasn't learned. It doesn't mean that, you know, as you said, there could be something that opens up a whole new market at some point because it kind of all that IP, as you called it, creativity. Um, just gets kind of dispersed in different ways, you see. So I, I agree. I agree with that. The worst thing you can do, I think, is is try and you know, lock that down. You know, lock it down somewhere and say, "Oh, that's not what we do." So you can't be creative. You can't think outside the box. It's too structured. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, and then I suppose the final thing that's that's a, a, a thread between all of these different 
different scale ups that I've done within the with again. I've got so much respect for guys like you who build businesses on your own entrepreneurs. You know, when you make it rich, you deserve every penny. And that's brilliant. And I've lived a corporate life, which is less uh, risky. But within that corporate life, those scale ups that I've done, I think the final thing I would just say is about um, it's about talent management, I suppose. And I think when mm. you're when you're launching something new, it's things like things like appraisals, things like job descriptions, things like being really clear on what you want people to do, KPIs. They don't seem particularly important. I mean, I remember when I was launching one magazine, I got the editor in a very entrepreneurial guy and I said to him, you haven't done everybody's job descriptions. And he said, yes, I have. I've done everybody's job descriptions. And I said, well, can I see, can I see one of them, please? I mean, give me the design, give me the head of design's job description. So he said, yeah, okay. And he came back into the office, gave me a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, it said, job description at the top. Do whatever I say, whenever I say it. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon we've had the same, we've had the same boss. <laughs> um, so, so, but I do think when you're scaling up, you have to put those things to one side. You have to say, look, people expect to have a clear job description. They expect to have uh, regular catch-ups, regular mentoring sessions. You, you, they deserve to have, or they expect to have some kind of uh, job uh management they want to know where they're going they've got questions that you probably never did have as an entrepreneur launching something but they have because they're an employee and they they require that kind of um hr element uh that's that's the best it's the best way to keep talent that i've found is to make really clear this is what i want you to do this is your strengths this is your weaknesses let's meet again in six months time and see how you're going basic stuff like that yeah, no, it's basic, but it's important. And, you, and you, as you've said, the kind of the thread through all of this is you've got more people, you've got therefore more complexity. So you've got to have something which is structured, you've got to have these things in place, which make that difference. No, I fully agree with that. Fully agree. Yeah. You know, it's, um, that's really powerful. We haven't probably talked about the structure of those things in that way beforehand. And I think that's really nice because, because even though you've said, you know, it's corporate, it's not entrepreneurial and all that sort of thing. It's still really, really the same stuff. It's the same skill set, the same mindset to be able to do those, those really powerful things to be able to get change to happen to drive results. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I think it also, you've also get that whole balance between, are we just going to go with an idea or are we going to use data and how much research are we going to do? I think that is true, whether you're in a corporate environment or not. And I think my, my instinct always is just to go with, you know, I don't really listen to research to be honest. I just go, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's actually a weakness, <laughs> but on, in the ideas that have grown the businesses that I've run, I've tended just to think that sounds like a really good idea. Let's just go for it. Um, yeah. and, and as I said before, it's a gut feel as well, isn't it? I mean, cause I, yeah. I, I remember that everyone used to turn up with research papers at EMAP and tell us that this is going to be the next big thing. But I think you were one of the people who said that a lot of the great ideas, the magazines that stood the test of time were the ones that came from someone's gut feel being intuitive about the market and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, I think all of the really successful that definitely they did. Yeah. That's how it came about. Cool. Well, listen, I'm, you know, you've been very generous with your time today, Phil, and we've had a few challenges <laughs> with various things going on. But um, I just want to say, you know, what's, if you think back on all of this, everything you've done, you know, all the kind of success you've had, and now what's, what's some advice, one last tip of advice you could give for people who are on, on this kind of scale up journey, you know, one thing that's kind of stood out for you that you would say, 
it's it's the one thing that's kind of underpin your success in what you've done i suppose i suppose can i have a couple of things you can do two i'll give you two we've known each other for 20 years you can have two <laughs> <laughs> um one of the best quotes i ever heard was you can't build a reputation on what you're going to do oh, i love it and so just getting on and delivering stuff in every context whether that's for your investors or for your staff or for you know for your for your, cons for your cons consumers less of the talk and more of the doing um is is just really really important lesson i think to learn that was henry ford said that um and then and then i think you know just in terms of leadership we'll be talking about building those teams and scaling up your business and trying to lead um i think leadership is is incredibly simple actually i really do i've thought about this a lot and leadership really is is just having the ability to say to people guys we're going to do this and we're not going to do that <laughs> and it is actually honestly is that simple because because when you've got a big team everyone's got a slightly different point of view they all want to do something slightly different and what all it really needs is a decision about we're going to do this we're not going to do that the chances of that being 100 percent correct are very very small but in a way it doesn't matter because at least you're clear on what you're going to be doing yeah i that but that's such a you know you've said that with such precision and simplicity but it's not you know because i think a lot of people get into their heads all the time well, what if what if i fail it's the fear of expectation that you know i'm going to lose my job or whatever else or people are going to judge me in certain ways but you're right it's it, it's not about necessarily being right all the time yeah that's right what's, what's that famous saying you, you lived in the us for a while as did i and the whole baseball thing around what, what's what's a good i don't follow baseball but a good hitting rate is like you know hitting three out of ten or something 300 30 percent or whatever and you think they're failing seven times out of ten but that's considered great yeah i mean my current boss uh the ceo of essential you know he he says he says you know i make 10 decisions i'm expected to get 50 percent of them right and if i do i'm still in a job and so there's no expectation to get 100 percent of the decisions right and any uh, and that's a great way to just stay sane <laughs> i agree and you're right it's about making the decision having the confidence to do it um and and living with whatever those consequences are and sometimes it takes you to the promised land sometimes it takes you to the pit of despair but I, I often say that's just the journey of of leadership really you know it's not it's not easy it can feel lonely we've both i suppose experienced that in different ways mm. but you know it's a it's a fun place to be uh, if you're prepared to put yourself into that position and show up yeah well, listen, congratulations to you on everything you've achieved since we worked together back in the day. It's, uh, it's just great to see and many congratulations on, on the podcast. I always knew you were a genius at marketing <laughs> and sales and all of that, but this has been proved by the huge success of this podcast. So congratulations yeah. to you. I appreciate that. Um, I think we're both relatively humble. I don't like taking praise and you don't like it either. <laughs> but I appreciate it and I will wear it. Um, but no, it's been, as I said, you know, what I said at the beginning, it's, it's because I've, I've been around some great leaders through my career and, you know, things fall into place when you kind of listen and you put stuff into, into practice. So you are certainly on that list, Mr. Phil Thomas, and uh, I wish you all the best with, uh, with your career and what you're doing um, going forward as well. Thanks so much, Nick. Great to see you. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,